1: It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to episode 302 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Since his return from Richmond, Robert E. Lee had been working with Little Rest to get the Army of Northern Virginia ready to carry out his plan for a strike up into enemy territory. Lee planned to march north across the Potomac River into Maryland and then on up into Pennsylvania. Such a movement would not only disrupt any plans the federal commander, Joe Hooker, might have for a summer campaign, but it would take the armies out of war-ravaged central Virginia and give the people of Lee's home state a much-needed respite from the hard hand of war.
0: Another of Lee's goals for the new campaign Was for his army to gather desperately needed supplies from a region previously untouched by the hard hand of war. You see, all through the winter of 1862-63, the Army of Northern Virginia had suffered severe shortages of food for its men and fodder for its horses and mules. And so, as a solution to his serious logistical problems, Lee was counting on the fact that an invasion of Pennsylvania in the summer of 1863 would take his army into a bountiful region where it could obtain critical supplies.
1: And then Robert E. Lee was also going north because he was looking to win a battlefield victory of real consequence. After almost a year in command, such a victory still eluded Lee, He had been left intensely frustrated after defeating the Federals at Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville, because although he had beaten the enemy in both battles, they had simply retreated back across the Rappahannock River each time, thereby denying Lee the opportunity to deal them a truly crippling blow. But now, Lee would march north into Pennsylvania looking for another battle, one that he would win on the enemy's home ground a battle that would result in a victory of real consequence, a smashing victory that would go a long way toward breaking the North's will to continue the war.
0: And so, since his return from Richmond, Robert E. Lee had been hard at work getting the army ready to march north. He had completed his reorganization of the army, shuffling units and commanders about so that there were now three infantry corps instead of two. That meant as the Army of Northern Virginia started out on the new campaign, the men tasked with carrying out Lee's plans would be Lieutenant Generals James Longstreet, Richard Yule, and A.P. Hill, while Major General Jeb Stuart remained in command of the Army's Cavalry Division.
1: General Lee set June 3rd as the starting date for the new campaign. Colonel Edward Porter Alexander, a talented artillery officer in Longstreet's Corps, later wrote, I recall the morning vividly, a beautiful, bright June day, and about 11 a.m. a courier from Longstreet's headquarters brought the order. Although it was only to march to Culpeper Courthouse, we knew that it meant another great battle with the enemy's army.
0: In a June 8th letter to Confederate Secretary of War James Seddon Robert E Lee acknowledged quote, "I am aware that there is difficulty and hazard in taking the aggressive." End quote. However Lee also pointed out that quote, "there is always hazard in military movements but we must decide between the positive loss of inactivity and the risk of action." As far as I can judge, there is nothing to be gained by this army remaining quietly on the defensive.
1: By the time he wrote that letter, on June 8th, Lee had already set most of his army in motion, starting the series of marches that would eventually, he anticipated, carry the Army of Northern Virginia up into Pennsylvania. In his letter to Seddon, Lee was no doubt reiterating points he had made the month before in Richmond, When he'd met with the Secretary of War and with Confederate President Jefferson Davis. That is, Lee was moving to seize the initiative during the summer campaigning season because, in his mind, there was, as he wrote to Seddon, nothing to be gained by this army remaining quietly on the defensive.
0: The opening phase of Lee's plan called for Hill's corps to remain temporarily at Fredericksburg facing the Federals across the Rappahannock, while Longstreet's Corps and Ewell's Corps, quietly utilizing the cover of the terrain on the southern side of the river, began marching northwest toward the Blue Ridge Mountains. Their first destination would be Culpeper Courthouse, about 30 miles northwest of Fredericksburg.
1: And here we'll make our uh, first pitch for pulling out your Civil War atlas, and taking a look at a map, so you can see what we're talking about when we mention these places. Now, if you have your trusty old Echoes of Glory Civil War atlas by Time Life, that's fine. You can check out the first map in the section about the Gettysburg campaign. But, throughout the rest of this story arc, we're actually going to be referring quite a bit to a couple of Gettysburg-specific atlases. Those are... The Maps of Gettysburg by Bradley Gottfried, and Philip Lano's Gettysburg Campaign Atlas. In fact, on page 3 of Leno's book, there's an excellent map of this area of operations, and you can see where Culpeper Courthouse is located in relation to Fredericksburg. Okay, so there you go.
0: So, as we said a moment ago, the initial phase of Lee's plan called for one corps of infantry to remain at Fredericksburg, facing the Federals, while the other two started to march northwest toward the Blue Ridge, and their first destination on the way to the mountains would be Culpeper Courthouse, which was located on the Orange and Alexandria Railroad.
1: The Confederate cavalry had already started to assemble, Jeb Stuart had arrived in Culpeper County on May 20th and established his headquarters there to oversee the concentration of the rebel horsemen in preparation for the upcoming campaign. Within a few days, three brigades of Confederate cavalry had arrived and set up their camps in the lush fields of Culpeper County. In addition to providing intelligence on the whereabouts of the Union Army, Stewart's assignment in the campaign ahead would be to provide a screen for the rebel infantry as they moved north from Culpeper, down the Shenandoah Valley, and into Pennsylvania.
0: Lafayette McClaw's division of Longstreet's Corps led the Army's march away from Fredericksburg, setting off on June 3rd for Culpeper. Over the next few days, most of Longstreet's and Ewell's Corps assembled there, where they joined Jeb Stewart's horsemen. When they pulled
1: out of the Army's lines at Fredericksburg, Longstreet's troops, and then Dick Yule's men, first marched south in order to disappear from the sight of the Federals who had two bothersome observation balloons that soared up into the sky nearly every day. After marching south through green groves of locust trees and majestic oaks towards Spotsylvania Courthouse, the Confederates turned westward, crossed the Rapidan River, then went on to Culpeper Courthouse, some thirty miles from their starting point at Fredericksburg.
0: In starting to pull most of his army out of its lines and sending them marching off to Culpeper, Robert E. Lee was gambling on what he assumed his opponent would or would not do. After all, the entire army of the Potomac was encamped along the northern bank of the Rappahannock River, opposite Fredericksburg, and Lee was leaving behind only A.P. Hill's Corps, perhaps 20,000 men in all, to confront Hooker's 80,000.
1: In this initial phase of Lee's plan, Hill and his soldiers remained behind at Fredericksburg to occupy the attention of Mr. F.J. Hooker, who was there just across the river. As Coddington points out in his book, The Gettysburg Campaign, during the Civil War, the Rappahannock River was one of the most important geographical features in Northern Virginia. It acquired a great psychological and military significance to the Federal and Confederate armies here in the Eastern Theater. In the spring of 1863, it separated the two armies physically so that, regardless of their positions, the commanding generals always had to reckon with it as they planned their moves. To both the rebels and the Yankees, the Rappahannock acted sometimes as an obstacle and sometimes as a welcome barrier. Depending on just what they had in mind.
0: Coddington writes quote, For two years, Lee had used the Rappahannock to block the way to Richmond, and now, as he was about to start his offensive maneuvers, he hoped it would screen his army while he moved northwest toward the mountains.
1: And so, while Longstreet and Ewell marched away, Lee kept A.P. Hill's corps in position on the Rappahannock and thinned it out along the south bank in order to maintain the army's former lines and keep up an appearance that, in Lee's words, quote, "...will be best calculated to deceive the enemy and keep him in ignorance of any change in the disposition of the army."
0: But although the Rappahannock firmly separated the two armies and Hill's Corps was left behind to keep up appearances, it proved impossible to hide such a major troop movement, and almost as soon as rebel units started to march away from Fredericksburg, reports of Confederate activity across the river reached Hooker's headquarters.
2: What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Did archaeologists
1: discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this?
2: Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation, Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast.
1: Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics. We go back to source materials in their original languages. And we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer. Or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time. We think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast.
2: Wherever you subscribe to awesome shows.
1: The Rascals are up to something noted a staff officer in the Army of the Potomac's 1st Corps on June 4th. Even though most of Ewell's Confederates were waiting until dark to pull out on the 4th, the movement of Longstreet's troops the day before, on June 3rd, had not gone unnoticed by the Federals.
0: For several days, reports had been coming into Hooker's headquarters, which indicated the Confederate cavalry was massing upriver around Culpeper. Now, the rebel army at Fredericksburg appeared to be up to something. As early as June 4th, Colonel George Sharp of the Bureau of Military Information was reporting There is considerable movement of the enemy. Their camps are disappearing at some points.
1: This news placed Joe Hooker firmly upon the horns of a dilemma. If the Confederates were starting a major movement away from Fredericksburg, it could mean a couple of things. As Hooker quickly notified Washington, if the enemy army was on the move, it could mean that the rebels were intending, quote, to move up the river with a view to the execution of a movement similar to Lee's of last year.
0: Hooker was pointing out that a movement by the rebel army meant Lee was launching an offensive, like the Confederate commander had done the year before. And when Lee had assumed the aggressive the year before, in 1862, it had resulted in major battles at 2nd Manassas and at Antietam.
1: Hooker notified Abraham Lincoln that a major enemy movement away from Fredericksburg, now, would indicate one of two things. Either a march, quote, to cross the upper Potomac, end quote, that is, a crossing of the Potomac above Harper's Ferry, which would mean, at the very least, another Confederate strike into Maryland, or, at worst, perhaps an invasion of Pennsylvania.
0: Or, Hooker told Lincoln, Lee might be aiming, quote, to throw his army between mine and Washington, end quote. Lee could do this by lunging around Hooker's right flank and reoccupying the old Bull Run battlefield.
1: It's pretty obvious when you say it out loud, But Hooker's dilemma, put very simply, was that he didn't know what Lee intended to do. Would it be a short lunge designed to get around Hooker's right flank and place the rebel army between the Army of the Potomac and Washington? Or would it be a movement farther to the west, which would let Lee cross the upper Potomac and strike into Maryland, and possibly up into Pennsylvania?
0: Well, Hooker decided the best way to approach the problem was if he himself launched an offensive across the Rappahannock River, overwhelmed whatever force Lee had left at Fredericksburg, and then moved down the line of the Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac Railroad so as to threaten the almost undefended Confederate capital of Richmond.
1: Then Hooker reasoned, no matter what Lee was up to, the rebel commander's plans would necessarily be thrown into disarray because he would have to deal with this threat to Richmond. And so Hooker told Lincoln quote, After giving the subject my best reflection, I am of the opinion that it is my duty to pitch into Lee's rear.
0: But Abraham Lincoln was tired of commanders who believed Richmond was their target instead of the rebel army. Lincoln told Hooker that he was turning Hooker's telegram over to General-in-Chief Halleck so that Halleck could respond to Hooker's plan. But then Lincoln went on to offer his own two cents worth, and the president packaged his opinion in one of his vivid, homespun frontier metaphors.
1: Should Lee move north, Lincoln said, and leave behind a force at Fredericksburg, quote, tempting you to fall upon it, then he warned Hooker not to take the bait. Lincoln said, "'I would not take any risk of being entangled upon the river "'like an ox jumped half over a fence "'and liable to be torn by dogs front and rear "'without a fair chance to gore one way or kick the other.'"
0: It was bad news for Hooker that Lincoln would not support his plan— but perhaps worse for the army commander was Lincoln saying that he'd given Hooker's telegram to Halleck so that the general-in-chief could reply to it. You see, there was bad blood between Hooker and Halleck going back to pre-war days, so much so that when Hooker accepted command of the Army of the Potomac, he got Lincoln to agree to a rather unusual arrangement where Hooker could bypass the General-in-Chief in order to communicate with and report directly to the President.
1: Okay, so Lincoln should never have agreed to that unorthodox arrangement in the first place, and now the President was obviously trying to correct that mistake by bringing Halleck back into the loop. In any case, here, with regard to Hooker's proposal, Halleck expressed the same opinion as Lincoln, if less colorfully. Halleck pointed out that if Lee was, in fact, in the midst of a movement west and north, then that meant Hooker ought to maneuver so as to be on Lee's flank, and in that way position the Army of the Potomac to attack, and cut the rebel army in two.
0: Hooker wanted to cross the river and attack whatever force Lee had left behind entrenched at Fredericksburg, but Halleck asked, Would it not be more advantageous to fight his movable column first, instead of first attacking his entrenchments, with your own forces separated by the Rappahannock?
1: Halleck also warned of Washington's vulnerability if Hooker lagged too far behind in responding to Lee's movement away from Fredericksburg. None of this, of course, was what Joe Hooker was hoping to hear. He had already had a pair of pontoon bridges thrown across the Rappahannock three miles downstream from Fredericksburg and pushed across a division from Sedgwick's 6th Corps as a reconnaissance and force, quote, to learn, if possible, what the enemy are about.
0: That division engaged in some sharp skirmishing with A.P. Hill's Confederates, but Sedgwick reported he couldn't advance more than a few hundred yards without opening up a real battle. Hooker, however, knew he couldn't press the issue without Washington's support of his plan, so he contented himself with having the other two divisions of the Sixth Corps over the next few days taking turns occupying the newly conquered pocket around the crossing. Hooker
1: continued to press Halleck to allow him to cross the Rappahannock in force, but the general-in-chief wouldn't budge. Then Lincoln sent a message on June 10th saying, I think Lee's army, and not Richmond, is your sure objective point. If he comes toward the upper Potomac, follow on his flank and on his inside track.
0: And that was that.
1: And that was that. Joe Hooker wouldn't get to crash across the Rappahannock with the Army of the Potomac and test his theory that the road to Richmond was his for the taking.
0: And that meant Robert E. Lee's gamble had paid off. When a federal force, that division from Sedgwick's 6th Corps, had crossed the river, Lee, as a precaution, had halted Yule's march away from Fredericksburg. But when the Yankees had shown no inclination to really press A.P. Hill's troops, Lee sent Yule on his way to Culpeper.
1: Lee would leave Hill in place for the time being, just to be safe. But as Tracy said, his gamble had paid off. He would be able to successfully march his army away from Fredericksburg and get it on its way to Pennsylvania. Joe Hooker, however, was right back where he'd started, figuratively, and literally. Without having enough information about Lee's movements to get a good idea of the Confederate commander's intentions, Hooker felt he had no choice but to hold the Army of the Potomac in place for the time being.
0: To put it another way, Hooker was aware Lee was on the move westward, moving behind the Rappahannock, out beyond Hooker's right flank but Hooker needed to know for sure which route Lee was going to take after crossing the Upper Rappahannock. That's because if Lee kept south of the Potomac, then a direct attack on Washington was a probability.
1: But if the Confederates marched out to the Blue Ridge Mountains, then passed down the Shenandoah Valley, crossed the Potomac and into Maryland, and perhaps into Pennsylvania, then the threat to Washington was less likely all of that's to say that Lee, seizing the initiative, placed Hooker on the horns of a dilemma. With Lincoln and Halleck having put the kibosh on his plans to cross the Rappahannock in force, Hooker didn't believe he should move away from Fredericksburg until he knew how best to move to check Lee's advance. So for the time being, Hooker did, well, nothing. Or almost nothing. Nothing since, as we'll see in the next episode, he did decide to do something about that large force of Confederate cavalry reportedly concentrating at Culpeper Courthouse. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, that means we're going to be talking about the largest cavalry battle of the Civil War, the Battle of Brandy Station.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time, or recommendations, are The Maps of Gettysburg by Bradley M. Gottfried and Gettysburg Campaign Atlas by Philip Lano.
1: You can't go wrong with either of these atlases if you're serious about studying the Gettysburg Campaign and the battle, but we've found that our go-to atlas as we've been putting together this story arc has been Lano's book. So, if push came to shove and we had to pick just one, it would be his Gettysburg Campaign Atlas.
0: Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org.
1: And then as we wrap up this show, we want to give a shout-out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade and thank them for their support of the podcast. So thank you to James, Andre, Carl, Brendan, and Lou.
0: And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time as we start to talk about the Battle of Brandy Station. But until then, take care.
1: Thanks, everyone. Bye.